0: We have been looking at focusing on the Christ. So, just a real quick review: um, looking at the the shadow of Christ, and um, Christ has been portrayed in the old covenant, and that we've seen him. And then we've begun looking at the life of Christ over the last so many months, and over the last actually the last two months or so, we've been looking at his ministry side. We looked at his birth, his youth, but then we've looked at this little subsegment of his life, referring to his ministry, and. Um, we considered the preparation for his ministry, the proclamation of his ministry, the power, the parables, the passion, the pattern. In the last two weeks, we looked at the promises of his ministry and how exciting it is to, to know that, that Christ's ministry on the earth didn't end when he left, but rather he gave us great promises that were going to come. Today we want to continue to move on into his life toward the end phase, if you would, You know, the, the, the last phase of his life, and that we're going to look at his triumphal entry, then his arrest, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, and finally his, his ascension. And we're not done there, then we're going to look at the next phase of looking at the Christ, and that is the reflection of Christ, the return of Christ, the reign of Christ. Um, you know, again, as the, the disciple says, you know, if everything that was written about Christ, you know, was written, that even the what? The skies couldn't contain the whole. And so today we want to move on and we want to begin looking at the triumphal entry of Christ. And, uh, in Luke 19, as we read it this morning, as Steve read it this morning, hopefully you you read along there as well. You'll see that there's really two major phases of when he comes into this into the city of Jerusalem. And if you've been in Sunday school, um, you, we've talked a little bit about this as well. And so if you haven't been in Sunday school, I want to challenge you to come to Sunday school. There's good stuff going on there. Okay, we've been going through the Book of Isaiah, and it's amazing how the the the, the statements of Isaiah um, are being you know, we're, what we're talking about during the morning message too, and it's really kind of cool because I didn't plan it that way. Um, they're two totally different um, areas. But as we looked in Isaiah, and um, you know, I, I've challenged people just to, to go back and become a Jew during that day when Jesus began his earthly ministry, and he stood up in the the, uh, the synagogue in, um, in Nazareth, and he quoted Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2b, um, saying that today this is fulfilled in your presence. They would have been so excited thinking that messiah was here which he was but that he was going to establish what his but what what about his kingdom a physical kingdom on the earth okay we understand he did establish a kingdom you know but it was a spiritual kingdom and we look forward to the fulfillment of the the physical kingdom but they were expecting that kingdom to happen and that's what we begin to see here with this triumphal entry they see it the jews see it as this is it the king is here. He's been establishing it for three years. Now he's coming to Jerusalem. He's marching into Jerusalem. And so we begin looking at this, what's happening here, with this exaltation of Christ. But first it's with the Messianic preparations. Because there were things that happened here that, that aren't, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, just by um, random chance. But they're, they're, they're for a purpose. First of all, he comes in. Riding on a a donkey. He sends his disciples out specifically to get this colt of a donkey that he can ride on coming into the city. Well, there's a reason for it. And in Zechariah 9, verse 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming into you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the fool of a donkey. And so, him riding on this donkey... Was something that God had designed hundreds of years before him that when the true king would come, he would ride on a donkey. Okay? He would ride on the fool, the son of a donkey. And so Jesus specifically had that and he fulfilled that by them coming. And so the people, you know, they understand, not understand. They didn't have the Bible in their own homes to study. What did they have? They had scrolls. Where were they at? In the temple, they had the whole. But in the synagogues, they had different parchments. In some, There may have been some temples that had maybe a, a, a facsimile of the whole thing. But most synagogues only had portions. No, I'm good. And uh, they only had portions. And so, But they studied it. They took it for real. And when they went to Hebrew school, when they were little, they memorized large segments. In fact, much of the scriptures was passed down through oral tradition, they would memorize it, and they would pass it down. So these people, they would have some indicators of some of the things that were going on. But they didn't, like we talked about going through the shadow of Christ, they didn't know how it all fit together. Does that make sense? But there were certain things that they knew to expect. One of those things that they knew to expect was, very clearly, Behold, your king is coming to you. And how is he going to come? On a donkey. On the colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on that donkey, the, the messianic furo, uh, fervor could you imagine it? I mean, I wish I had a voice right now, because you know I'd be j- very dramatic at this moment, you know? I mean, I mean, this is killing me? this Is killing me? We sang songs that I, wanna, I, I just wanted to really bellow, you know, and, and here I am bellowing with no voice, you know. And it's your age, yeah, we're in place your AIDS. Two words,. You know? Anyways, um, but yeah, so here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm raising my hands. This is exciting stuff, and and their their fervor is just intensifying. Okay, well, how do we know that? By what goes on next. They begin spreading out the garments, and and according to um, Matthew, <coughs> according to Matthew, they begin throwing branches of trees. And according to John, John claims that those trees were palm branches. Okay, now the garments is really important. Um, in second, we'll be going to other verses here but coming through this phase I just put all these up here but in 2nd Kings chapter 9 beginning verse 11 we read about Jehu being anointed as king um, the prophet was sent to him to anoint him as king and so he draws him out from all of his, his cronies if you would and then he goes back in and so they ask him the question Jehu came out to the servants of his master and one said to him is all well why did this madman he was a prophet you know, So, I mean isn't that what they call us to Bible thumpers and stuff like that, we're, we're just what? We're mad people. You know, we're madmen. We don't get it, right? And so here was a guy who was a prophet of God coming to them. right? And they said, what is this madman come to you? And he said, ah, you know the man in his babble. And they said, you're lying. Tell us. Tell us now. What did he say? So he said, thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, thus says Yahweh, I've anointed you king over Israel. Well, instead of everybody else, you know, because this madman came to you, you know this prophet of Yahweh. You know this madman. You know they always say weird stuff. You know Israel's going to be destroyed. Ahab's going to go away. Da da da. You know all this kind of stuff. And so, what does this madman want to say to you? You would expect that when he says, "Well, thus and thus says Yahweh," Yahweh says that I'm going to be the next king. You'd think that they would say, "What? Oh, you're right. That guy's an idiot." Okay. And uh, but they didn't. Look what they do. Then each man hastened to take his garment. They took off their robes and their cloaks. And they put it under Jehu, under him, on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. Yahu is king. And so one of the ways that they were showing their submission to Jehu as the next ruler is that they were taking off their outer garments and they were laying it down so he could just walk on them. And what it showed was the submission of the people to his role. Does that make sense? That as they, as Jehu, stood on their garments, it was symbolic of him st- standing on on them. Okay. Um, and so, um, I thought it was for me. Um, anyways. <laughs> we're having a party in here and it's not for me. Anyways. Um, but Anyways, what a neat thing. And so what happens is, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what do the people do? They take off their outer garments, and they're throwing it. Now, understand, where's Jesus at? He's on a donkey. On a paved road, right? I mean, it's got asphalt. Maybe it's concrete. It's, you know, it's really nice. No. What kind of road is it? Cobblestone at best. At best. It's probably dirt, mud. It's dirty. I mean, he's, he's, on, a, he's on a donkey, Okay, what do you think that looks like when a donkey walks? It's a lot of mud, dust, every, you know, and so they lay their cloaks down. Not just for Jesus to walk on gingerly, nicely, being considerate of their, of their clothes, I'm sure. But it's for the donkey to walk on. So, so the word of God says that he's going to come, and he's going to come riding on a donkey, and then it says that they laid down their cloaks because they understood what they were making was a tr- tr- tremendous statement that they were willingly, submissively placing themselves under the authority of this man, that they proclaimed him to be Messiah. Now, it also says these palm branches is important because tradition of that day was when a king would come in, they would throw roses and, and um, things that were symbolic of the land. You know, the, the, the foliage and stuff like that. Again, it was symbolic. Saying what? The land belongs to you too. You know, it's all yours. And so there are a lot of date poems and stuff like that in, in the land, okay? And again, we're going to talk about this in a moment. We mentioned it in Sunday school. When we think of Israel right now, a lot of times we think of southern Israel and we think of a lot of desert, all the way up to even around Jerusalem. You're going to see in a moment it wasn't always that way. But it was the pro- prophecy of this passage that brought it about, that caused it to be so. Okay, We'll get to that at the end. Okay, Jerusalem and Israel was a very verdant land. Um, it was that land filled with milk and honey that, that God had promised. Remember when he sent the disciples in, or the, I'm sorry, the, the, the spies in, you know, 12 men with the spy in, Cain and 10 were bad, 2 were good. Okay, When they went in, it wasn't that they, they just didn't get it. You know, they looked at this desert land and they said, Oh, yeah, this really is a place of, of milk and honey. You know, they just didn't know what milk and honey, you know, milk and honey looked like. No, it was really a, a vibrant, verdant land. And so they're throwing these palm branches down and they're saying, You are the roarer, you are the king. We and our land are under you. We are woefully placing them in submission. That's why <clears throat> that's why the scribes, the Pharisees and such got all indignant. Who were the rulers? They were. They were. The Sanhedrin was the rulers. Now, of course, they got their power from who? From Rome, okay? And they didn't want anything wrong. They don't have any problems with Rome. I mean, honestly, they wouldn't mind being Rome being set aside, but if Rome was set aside, they still wanted what? Them to be in charge. Does it make sense? So they liked it just fine, having Rome being in charge because that meant that they had power. Okay? But now all of a sudden, if Messiah truly comes, what happens? It upsets the apple cart of authority. And now all of a sudden, they lose out. And so, all the people who were under whose authority? The Sanhedrins and ultimately Rome, they're putting their cloaks and the palm branches under this guy, saying, What? We're following you. Now, there's a scary thought here for, for Israel as well that you need to kind of. Bring into, you know bring all these thought processes in here. What does Rome do to a nation that has an uprising? They crush it. They, crush it. they smash it. <coughs> Sorry, too much excitement. Um, and and this had happened. This had happened in Israel in the past. That there were false messiahs that came, and and when they came, the false messiahs came. They came to establish a physical kingdom. And when they went to do that, Rome did what? They squashed it. They, they destroyed it. And Gamala, have anybody heard of what happened at Gamala? You know, when, when all the people went up. And this is up in the, um, the, um, oh, good grief. Come on, Bob. I hate when my brain takes a vacation. Um, north, east, Galilee, above the Sea of Galilee. Um, the the height, that's the big battle. Golan Heights, Golan Heights. Ga- Gamala is up in that area, OK? Um, I believe so, if my geography is right here. Um, and they the battle was going on and all these people went up into this precipice this is like this mountain where they had a cave and you know so they could defend against rome with well, the problem you know whenever you do that kind of stuff it's really kind of weird because what what really do you do to yourself you back yourself in a the corner there was no water up there there's nothing else where are you going to go and so what do the armies back then do well, we'll find out in a moment they siege they put in sieges right and they do what they, they start, they wait you out, they starve you out. They don't have any problem with the supply lines. They just keep bringing it in, you know? And so they went up there, and finally the Jews, instead of surrendering, threw themselves off the precipice. And I mean, all these thousands of Jews just died that day, warriors just throwing themselves to the, to the rocks below so that they would not be taken prisoners by, by Rome. The same thing happened after this, the, this fulfillment of, that Jesus is proclaiming, and we'll talk about in a moment, of the destruction of Jerusalem. The same thing happens when the Zealots uh, flee, and, and they go to um, um, Masada. Thank you. You're helping me. I appreciate that. The fortress um, that David refers to as the fortress, but it's Masada. And in Masada, at Masada, they had on the top of this plateaued mountain... A whole city up there—it's phenomenal. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, go. Don't go on one of these tours, though. You know, where, where they're going to take you all to the Catholic shrines and everything. Just, just go and see the land. It's phenomenal. Um, the, this, and much of it is still there from the older days. You know, they, they like to take you to all the, the newer stuff and everything. But go find find one where you're going to have an archaeologist archeolo- as a guide, and he's going to take you to all the ruins and stuff like that. It's great. It's really awesome. Um, I encourage you to do that. It's worth the money. I'd, I'd love to. I mean, one of these days, I'm going to get the money, and Marsha and I are going to go back again. Um, and maybe I'll stay. No, anyways. Um, one day in Jerusalem, huh? Yeah. So, anyways. Um, but they would go up to Masada, and then again, what did Rome ultimately do? They siege, they siege the Masada as well. There's no way they could get up at them. They, I mean, it was a perfect place. But eventually, they were going to be starved out. You know, they could, they could hold up for years, but eventually... They're going to die out. And so what did they do there? They drew straws. And who was going to kill? I mean, they, were going to, they, were, they didn't want to kill themselves. And, and it was considered murder to, to kill somebody else. And so they drew straws to find out who the murderer would be. And then it was, so. The, then the fathers took care of the families. And then a man took care of the rest of the men. And then ultimately, then he killed himself. So that when Rome finally got up there, when they realized that there wasn't a lot going on and they ventured to, to put on the attack, they realized that there was nobody to kill. So anyways, a little digression that will play into later. Um, but, so this is really key. This messianic preparations that were going on were, though they weren't voicing yet, which we're going to get to in a moment, though they weren't voicing it yet, they were demonstrating by their actions who they thought Jesus was and how they were going to follow him. The second thing is, then, the Messianic declarations, first of all, being acclaimed by the people. What did the people shout out? Hosanna, Hosanna, yeah, glory to the king of Israel, right? And so, we read in Mark, Mark's version of it, in verse chapter 11, he says, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David." that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, this is a direct quote from Psalm 118. Now, I'm going to put a, more than just the verse there because I, I just can't leave the, the, the context. So this is, some of this is a little bit aside. I just can't leave the context of this aside. It's so, so awesome. Now, you've got to understand that from Psalm 112, I think it is, I think it's Psalm 112, to Psalm 118 is what's called the Hillel. Hillel. And it's the songs of ascent. And that as they would go up to Jerusalem, because that's ascenting, they were going up. And then the temple was even the highest part of Jerusalem. So it's the songs of ascent, because they would sing them as they were going up to the temple. Those from Psalm 112 to Psalm 118. So when, as they would go up to the temple, they would be singing these songs. And so the, the, the highlight, the, um, the climax, the apex of the songs is here in Psalm 118. This is when they're getting this, they would be singing this multiple times a year, okay? So, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Have you heard that quote before? That's the New Testament. Jesus used it to, to, to refer to who? Who was Jesus referring to? Himself. He was the, the chief stone which the builders rejected that became the cornerstone. This was Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, you know this, not from Psalm 118. Now, you may have memorized this from Psalm 118, but you probably know it from the New Testament. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day Yahweh has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We can all sing that, right? We know that song, okay? Save now, I pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, I pray, send now prosperity. Now, I know in yours it doesn't have this, this hieroglyphic type of stuff next, but this is the Hebrew, okay, that's in it. What's exciting is this word, save for save now, is really Hoshaana. Hosanna, Hosanna. Hoshaana. And what they're saying is that's what they're so they're quoting it. So when they say Hosanna, they're saying, save now. And in this word, um, here, you see the same word as here and here, okay? And it's the word annah, and it means to beseech, to, to, to plead, to implore, you know, that they're 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 begging God for his salvation, for God to come and, and to bring that salvation. And so that's where the I pray, I pray comes at. You know, it's this imploring part of it. And so they, quoting it, are quoting, if you would, singing this, this song of ascent, imploring God for his salvation. What are they saying? We recognize that this guy that's here on the donkey, the whom we're putting our, our garments and, and, and palm branches under, is the guy who's going to what? save us. He's gonna, he is our deliverer. You know the song, our deliverer is coming. Okay, and, and that's what they understood that salvation is the concept of deliverance. So their savior, they weren't thinking spiritually, save them from their sins. They're thinking savior who's going to save them from Rome or the tyrant, whoever the, the, uh, the one who has tyranny over them is. And so it goes on, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. So uh, Isaiah 9 says that uh, those who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. And so we understand that Jesus said, I am the what? The light of the world, you know? And, And so this light, he has given us this light. But then look what it says right with it. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. No, they're not getting everything. You know, Don't you wonder what they're thinking about when they're singing these things sometimes? They're thinking physically, we're going up to the, to the temple, and we're doing what? We're going to offer a sacrifice. But God prophetically was putting out about this cornerstone, this, um, this chief stone which the builders are going to be rejecting, who was going to become what? The sacrifice for them. And so And that is how he was going to what? Save them. Do you see it? It's so cool. And, and, and they were singing it all the time, when <clears throat> they were going up to do their sacrifices. They were singing the prophecy of what God was going to do. And here they are receiving receiving the sacrifice. Again, it's for, um, I shared it earlier in the year and it's for another moment now, but what day, what day, does anybody know the actual date according to the Hebrew calendar? that Jesus was probably entering into Jerusalem? No? It wasn't Feast of Trumpets? I'll tell you it was in the month of Nisan. Does that help? No, and that's not a car. 14th? No, that's Passover. But you're close. 10th. The 10th day of Nisan. The 10th day of Nisan, it was the first day of the week. Okay? It wasn't Shabbat. It was the first day of the week okay it was the tenth day and according to exodus chapter 12 that was the day that israel was supposed to choose the lamb and they were supposed to set the lamb aside for the next four days till the 14th day of nisan so it could be tested it could be examined to make sure that it was pure we're not going to go into that in our series but do you know what the next phase is for jesus after he goes into the land the next four days he is what He's tested. They're looking for the for the for the, the 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 bad hair. They're looking for the blemish. Okay? And they can't find one. It proves that he's the perfect sacrifice. So they don't get it, but as they're claiming him, this this Messiah, the one who's going to save, they're also claiming him as the as the sacrifice who is going to come. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His chesed, his mercy, his faithful love and kindness to the objects of his covenant is for what? It's forever. It endures forever. God will never change his chesed with you. And we talked about that in Sunday school. If God's promises would ever change to Israel, it's changed to you. And so what a... What an awesome thing. So in this acclamation that the people were giving him, they were acclaiming him as Messiah, but what they didn't realize was they were also acclaiming him as the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. It is so cool. And now look at what, again, Luke 19, and again, you know, Steve has read this. Um, Jesus' affirmation. Because, again, what we just mentioned before, the, um, the people, the, the, the leaders are what? They're offended. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What are they trying to say? You need to tell them what? Stop calling me king. Why? Because I'm, I'm not. I'm not Messiah. You're, you're, you're doing it wrongfully. You know, listen, this is not giving God glory. You're quoting Psalm 118 like it applies to me. But we know that it applies to, to Yahweh. And, and it applies to, to, the, to the, the representative of Yahweh who's going to come. And so you shouldn't be doing that. He didn't say that, did he? No, he didn't say it at all. In fact, they said, Rabbi, Rabboni, rebuke your disciples. And he says, listen, if they would hold their tongues, even the rocks would cry out with praise. Now, I don't think that he was physically going to say that the the rocks are going to sing. But the point is that they can't but help themselves to speak what is true. But God has welled up within them that it's going to happen. And if, if for some reason you could shut them up, even the rocks would cry out. You know, just like Yahweh said, and I think Jesus is Yahweh manifested, just as Yahweh said, only if you could destroy my covenant that I made with the sun, the moon, and the stars, can you destroy the covenant that I made with Israel. In other words, you can't. It can't help but happen the way God planned for it to happen. And this is what God planned for it to happen. And so, even if you could shut these people up, all nature itself would resound with praise at this moment because of who I am, and that you don't get. Oh, four thousand, (laughs) Larry insists. Voice boxes to sing, anyways. You know, God is glorified by our praise, but the praise resounds from where? Our hearts. You may be a mute. And you still give glory to God in your heart. Does that make sense? The church in China gathers together. And do you know how the church in China sings? Silently. That's exactly right. They lip sync together and praise. Because they can't sing out loud. Because then they'll be, they'll be found out. But the spirits are making a joyful noise. And they're gathering together to lift their voices and their hearts, the, the voice of their hearts before God. What an awesome thing. We take it for granted, you know. Um, and we, you don't think anything, you didn't think this morning that maybe the government was going to burst in this morning and, 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 and arrest you and throw you in jail because you want to sing Amazing Grace, you know. But over in China, that's a very real probability. In Indonesia, and in Vietnam, it's a very real probability. In Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, Around the world, believers don't, get, don't have that. But you know what? They can't help but gather together to resound with praise before the one who created them. It ought to be the same way with us. Is, are you so impacted by who God is in your life and what Christ has done for you that you can't help but give praise to God? Or does God need to raise up stones and squirrels and birds to give him praise because his people won't? Do you get it? Anyways, and so this exaltation of Christ is incredible. But note this transition that goes on, though. Um, right after this is, it happens, it says, verse 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he what? And he wept. And we go from the exaltation of Christ to the lamentation of Christ. And Christ was lamenting. Christ was sorrowful. For as he came in, there is this, this paradoxical moment that's going on. He's being received by these people with great acclaim as Messiah. But yet he knows, he knows in, that in less than a week, their cheers are going to turn to jeers. Yeah, he, that, that their shouts of affirmation are going to be turning into shouts of condemnation. The procession was not for coronation, but for a crucifixion. The people didn't get it. They were being swept by the the, the moment, the, um, the the excitement of the moment, and Jesus knew it. And so, looking at Jerusalem and looking at his people, who were like sheep without a shepherd, he wept over them. And first of all, he weeps over the rejection of Jerusalem. Now, do you all remember from those who were Sunday school? We talked about Jerusalem and that. It's important because Jerusalem is not only representative of the people of Israel, but even more so, Jerusalem is where God chose to place his name. And so at the rejection of Jerusalem, because of what his people were doing, God ultimately was placing a rejection upon what? The place where his name dwelt. What was in Jerusalem? Jerusalem the temple. That was his house, quote-unquote. Though everybody understood that you can't make a house to what? That contains God. But everybody understood, and in the culture, the temple, where the temple was, was a reflection of that God. And if you destroyed the temple of the God, that meant that what? You were over the God. You were more powerful than the God. The God was nothing. And so Jesus I believe, was God in the flesh. He was Yahweh incarnate. And so as he looked out at Jerusalem, he knew was what was decreed, what he had decreed, what was going to come as a result of their sin, as a result of their rejection of him, there was the rejection now of his own city, the place where he had set his own name. And so in this rejection then, in this rejection of the city, we see um, the fact that they rejected what? They rejected peace. And we see the nearness of the peace that was here. Um, I think I have Psalm 85 up here. For Hag- okay, first we start with Haggai 2. It says, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says Yahweh, shall be Yod, the Lord of hosts. And in that place I will give peace. And so the, the children of Israel, again, understanding these Messianic prophecies, we're looking forward to what being established in Jerusalem? Peace. Remember the again the, the verses that we were reading this morning, they were expecting the Gentiles to do what? To be, to be their laborers. There was going to be peace, peace. In fact, as we look toward the rapture, we know from the Book of Thessalonians, it says when they say peace, peace, then sudden turmoil is going to come. Okay? And so they're looking for this moment of peace. They're looking for this moment of shalom. In fact, the name Jerusalem, Jerusalem, actually means the place, the flowing of peace, the flowing of tranquility. The word yeru, um, yerah, means to, to flow or extend. And so the idea, or to throw, to cast. But it all kind of derives from like a brook with the, 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 um, the stream. And so in my mind, I picture the, the river that comes from the, the throne of God that is pouring out. You know, We talk about the millennium and the end times where the river of life is going to be coming from the throne of God, which is seated where? in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, okay? And so and on either side of this river is gonna be the, the, the trees that bring forth the fruit, okay? And stuff like that. And so it's that concept of the flowing then. And so from Jerusalem, Yerushalom, there was going to be the flowing of peace. It's but here it is, ultimate peace is in their midst. He is there, the one who is going to bring them ultimate peace. And they what? Not just reject. They, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, rejected it. They missed it. It was right there. He was in their presence. They could touch him, and they might have. And they rejected him. They rejected the peace that God was offering him. In Psalm in eight, Psalm eighty-five, verse eight nine, we read, "I will hear what God Yahweh, um, Elohim Yahweh, will speak. For He will speak peace to His people and to His saints. But let them." Not turn back to foolishness or folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who what fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. The step, the first step to under to being delivered by God. The first step of understanding the peace of God is understanding what the fear of God. We talked about that last night in the in the in the victors meeting. Um, you know. And we, everybody always thinks that the fear of the Lord and I mean I've gotten this in the past every time I preach something about the fear of God uh, thankfully it really hasn't been here much but um, people who just come up against me because we're in the, the, the age of grace and say no, no, no the fear of the Lord, that was Old Testament stuff we're under the love of God now said, you haven't read your New Testament Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 therefore knowing the terror of the Lord I persuade men the terror of the Lord, Yahweh is the fear of God that's what it is Paul says, it's not because, he says, because the love of Christ constrains me, but in the same thing, in the same balance, he says what? It's also the fear of God. Because I know I'm going to stand before the throne of God, of the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm going to give an account for everything I do. Therefore, because of the fear of God, I persuade men. And then he says, the love of Christ constrains me. There's a balance that's there that we cannot walk away from. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Do you get it? That's why I asked the teens last night. Do you really get it? Only when we really understand the fear of the Lord will we really understand the life that he's given to us. We're told by Peter, his final, final challenge to us in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, but grow in grace and in the intimate knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I like that. And so you've probably heard me say this to you. Some may not have heard this, but um, how much grace did you get when you got saved? All of it. Well, how do you grow in it then? Because you begin to understand it more and more as you know Him in His holiness. You begin to understand more of your decadence. You know, I'm all for that. You know, when you do the t- the tulip thing, that this Calvinism thing, the total depravity. I understand we're totally depraved. There is n- there's nothing in me that is what. That's good, you know? I, my, my righteousness is like a filthy rag. And the more and more God reveals the, the 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 dross that's within me, the more I recognize how gracious he is. Do you understand? And so his grace becomes greater and greater to me because I realize how, more and more how unworthy I am. I don't deserve, by any stretch of the imagination, to be in his presence. It's purely only by his grace, and opening up the path through Jesus Christ for me to have the relationship with him. And so that goes on then, not into the nearness of the peace, but the nature of the peace. How does it all come? Turn with me to John chapter 16. John 16, where Jesus then begins to declare that which I've been, I've been mentioning here. John 16 Verse 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have great tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. Well, we talk about that. You know, In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. But before that, he says, What? I spoke these things so that you could have what? You know where peace comes from. Where does peace come from then? It comes from Jesus. If you're seeking peace, for peace, any place else I mean I understand there's a need for um, psychiatrists at times psychologists I as I counsel people from the word as well I understand that I understand at times there's a need for medications okay so i 'm not when I make my statement here i 'm not discounting those things to understand I understand physical nature of stuff, but I think that as people as a human being we seek for our peace to come from those things from, from reading myself of the, of the issue that I don't have to think about anymore many people turn to what in order to find their peace or to get rid of problems alcohol, yes drugs, yes um, they, they we go into different things, food some people overeat, whatever it is they seek to indulge themselves in another area so that they what, they just don't think about it, they forget the other thing well, I think the same thing happens when it comes to thinking about your relationship with God. And where am I going to go when I die today? Most people try to do what? Ignore it. Avoid it or what? Forget about it by immersing themselves in something else that causes them to forget about it. Okay? And, um, and so we can't do that. Jesus says, I'm it. I've, these things have spoken unto me that in me, in me, you may have shalom. Okay? You may have Peace. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. For you and I that are Gentiles, this is just a thrilling passage. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall partition middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace when in the temple, literally I should have a picture up here, I didn't think about it, but at the temple, literally there was a, there was a wall there was this like little gate wall that was a, a separation for the Gentiles they couldn't go into the next court there was the court of the Gentiles, then there was a the court of the women, then there was the, there was the court of the Jews, which meant Jewish men, and then there was the temple. And so the Gentiles could only go to that outer court. That's where they were allowed. But they couldn't enter. They were not allowed to enter. That's why when Paul, remember when that big furor, when Paul goes to Jerusalem and, and there's the, the, the big riot where he has to come, you know, they're beating him up, and the Roman army comes and it, and it delivers him. And then he asks to be able to speak, and he speaks from the the, the steps of Antonio's fortress and something. Like well, what was going on was they made a, an accusation. Some Jews made an accusation that he had taken some of the Gentiles, Titus and such, through that wall of partition, through the wall of separation, and brought those Gentiles into the court of the women, into the court of the Jews. Therefore, thereby, contaminating it which meant that everybody would have to go, and they would have to go through the whole purification process for the whole temple ground again, because, because somebody had contaminated it with a Gentile, with someone like you. Okay? And so, and he hadn't. He hadn't, but that's what the big deal was. And so we're told that Jesus, in Christ, that middle wall of separation, that middle wall of division was destroyed, was taken down, so that now you because of his blood, can enter into those other courts. And then ultimately, we know from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, that he also ripped down the veil so that we can not only just get into the court of the, the Jews, but now we enter where? Into the holy holies. But not only you as Gentiles can do that, but now even the Jews joining you as you march on through the different courts. They can join you as you march together with one hand, interlocking arms, into the throne of God. Isn't that awesome? There is only one man that now enters into into the Father, and that is those who believe in Jesus Christ. What an exciting thing. This is our peace. And so finally then, in Romans 5, a verse that's so exciting that's going on, that says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, in other words, that's, that's how we're saved, by faith, right? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word that's used there for the through, the access there, refers to the access point of a harbor between the breakwaters. And so out there in the sea of life, the the waters are tumultuous. There's turmoil, and and you're tossed to and fro. But you have these two breakwaters that are coming out. You know why breakwaters are called breakwaters, right? Right? Because they break the water, they break the waves, okay? And so, and what happens though is then you you come out of this tumultuous thing, you pass through this access point, and inside the harbor there's what? Tranquility, there's calmness. And that's what it is. That's the picture. You're in life, and life is just going on, and there's turmoil, and you're just tossed about all over the place. But then you come through Jesus into the presence of God, and there is shalom. There is shalom. And so Jesus said, I have written these things so that you would know that in the world and through me you have what? Peace. You know, in his high priestly prayer, he said, Lord, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. That's the reason they're here. They're here to be in the world so that they can testify of me. But I pray that while they're in the world that you sanctify them through the truth. My word is truth. And so that we need to understand that he hasn't spared us From the waves of life, it's going to happen. The ship's going to toss to and fro. (coughs) We're going to wonder at times, are we going to make it through? We're going to be the disciples who were the fishermen. And they're saying, Lord, save me. They're going to say, Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown? And yet it's through Jesus into the place of God that we can find the access point into peace. And he's always there. And he was there in the midst of the people. And they missed it. The one who was bringing them ultimate true peace. But they were looking for something cheap and shallow. Something temporal. They wanted peace from Rome. And that's important. Understand, you know, we want to have tranquility. You know, it's nice to live when when things are good, you know. But ultimately, it doesn't matter... The tumultuousness of this life, what ultimately matters is do you have peace with God so that throughout all of eternity you will experience shalom and not turmoil? Do you get it? How awful is it to experience turmoil here and miss the peace that God has offered you only to spend the rest of eternity in what? Turmoil. So, what about you? What about me? Well, let's go on to the destruction of Jerusalem. This isn't very long, but this is very important. He lamented over the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 43 and 44, there back in Luke 19, we read, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. What does it sound like is going to happen? A siege. They're going to build siege ramps. Jesus is talking about a siege here that the days are going to come when an enemy is going to come and he's going to lay siege to the city he's going to build siege ramps upon you look at the extent of it here and level you and your children within you to the to the ground they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation the extent of this destruction is going to be what complete and total look at what Josephus declared in Josephus was a, a a Jewish historian that lived in these days. He witnessed this. In fact, Josephus was used by the Ro, by the Romans as a um, a mediator. To, he was sent into to the Zealots because Rome didn't want to. Titus, General Titus was was a God-fearing man. I, I really believe. I'm not quite sure where he he stood in all that stuff. Okay, um, but. He didn't want to destroy Jerusalem he understood now some some interpreted saying that he wanted to keep it so that he could turn around and cause the make the temple into like the temple of Zeus or something like that or or um, actually that would be a Greek god but one of the, the Roman gods and stuff like that I'm not sure about all that okay I, I think from other things I've read about Titus that I, I feel that Titus might have just wanted to 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 be true to to, to keeping that temple okay and um, but they sent Josephus in, and they shot Josephus with, a, with an arrow. Um, and it took them months to mend. And then they sent them back in. And so they just re- totally rejected, okay? And, and I understand, they didn't want Roman rule, okay? I mean, how would we feel if we were under uh, Russian rule? Do you understand? I mean, I don't think we just, hopefully, you know, we would have zealots in our land that, that were acting as um, guerrillas or whatever we want to call them in today's warfare that were fighting for our land. Okay, We don't see that when we go over to other people's lands. And we go, what are they fighting against us for? They want their land. They want us gone. I mean, it's just which side of the battle you're on, right? Well, Josephus says, this is Book 6, Chapter 1, Paragraph 1. This gives you a picture of what Jerusalem was like. Remember, I said it was this verdant place. And truly, the very view itself of Jerusalem was a melancholy thing, for those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country every way and his trees were all cut down listen when they built those siege ramps where do you think they built it from you think they shipped them in from rome they cut down the forest all around they would devastate the land devastate the land if you have no no trees that's why it's important you know when we talk about arbor day not to hug the tree and kind of stuff but it's important and they're trying to reforest like down in the in in um in africa where the, the deserts are growing, they're trying to plant more trees because as the, the edges of the deserts die and as they cut down trees they cause the deserts to get bigger and bigger. Okay, If there are no trees, I mean You you have the water, it changes the water, changes the environment. I I don't understand all that stuff, just other stuff I've read, but it's amazing what happens. And that's what's happening here. That now became desolate country everywhere, the trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea in the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change, for the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste nor had anyone who had known the place before had come on it suddenly now, would he have even known it again? But though he were at the city itself, yet he would have inquired for it notwithstanding. So where's Jerusalem at? I thought it was here. I, I thought this was the way to go. But there ain't none here. Then down in chapter, uh, book seven, he says, Now as soon as the army the Roman army, had no more people to slay or plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of the fury, for they would have not spared any had there been remained any other work to be done. Titus, he refers to him as Caesar, because Titus becomes what? He becomes the next Caesar. He becomes the, the emperor of Rome. Okay? And so when, when Josephus is writing this, Titus is, is Caesar. Okay? So you understand this is Titus. Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. But for all the rest of the wall... That is surrounding Jerusalem. It was so thoroughly laid, even with the ground, by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that came thither, believe it had ever been, inhabited. The only thing that remains, the only thing that remains is the Western Wall. That's the Wailing Wall. You heard of the Wailing Wall? That's the only thing that remains. That wall that's around Jerusalem is not the wall that was rebuilt. The only thing that remains from that time is that Wailing Wall, is the Western Wall. And they have Robinson's Arch that's there as well, and Solomon's Temple. But that, that southwest corner of the temple, because it was, it was built up so much with the dirt behind it, like that, that part was left, because they're not, not going to tear apart the whole mountain at that part. And so that wall's only there because it was the foundational wall. It's really below the, the Temple Mount level. Does that make sense? Okay. But everything on the Temple Mount is wiped clean clean and all the gold that was in the temple was taken and as I shared earlier the ones who were able to escape through their, their, their uh, labyrinths of caves and, and tunnels and got to Masada ultimately the, the siege was placed there and, and they were killed as well but note the extent of it children were killed Jesus said your children will be killed and, and I didn't share a part of this here but, but um, Titus gave them a chance to come out gave them you know, to surrender and, and they, they had felt like they had a position of, of strength, I guess, or whatever. And they said, no, the only, we will come out only if you let us leave and pass through the army, us and our wives and our children, and, 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 and move to go someplace else. In other words, we're not going to come out as prisoners. We're going we're to come out and, and, and Martin and, and Titus says, you guys are nuts. You're acting like you're the ones who won this battle. I'm giving you a chance to survive. And that's when he gave the order that you read about to utterly destroy... Everything that's in it. And so the men, the women, the children, whoever was in there, <clears throat> would have been destroyed. So the extent of it is, is incredible. But what was the cause? What did Jesus put down as the state as the cause? Because they knew not the what? The time, the day of their visitation. God had come into their midst, and they missed it. Now here's a, here's a quote um, through Philostratus. Uh, Philostratus was a Greek historian about Titus. This is great. So you see Philostratus, the life of Apollonius, of Tyana. So I've done a lot of research this week. It's been kind of fun. Um, After Titus had taken Jerusalem, and when the country all around was filled with corpses, the neighboring races offered him a crown. But he disclaimed any such honor to himself, saying that it was not he himself that had accomplished this exploit, but that he had merely lent his arms to God, who had so manifested his wrath. Titus understood that it was not his prowess that destroyed Jews. It was their unfaithfulness to their own God. That God himself had handed over his people. Remember we talked about the lamenting of Jesus looking at Jerusalem and it was not necessarily just for the people because his name was put there. Titus got it. Titus understood what the whole situation was. Now, I don't know if he understood about Jesus, but I, it, does, I, it wouldn't go outside of my brain for him to have heard because we can show elsewhere that Josephus talked about Jesus. and about Jesus you know, Jesus is a historical person. You know, I know we take it by faith because it's in the Bible, but there was historians that wrote about him as well, okay? who not necessarily were, were Jesus lovers, but they referred to the, the miracles that Jesus had done. And it, clearly there were Roman centurions who believed. Yes? And so, again, what Titus knew and understood, I don't know, and I don't want to put words in his mouth or whatever, but I think it's a pretty phenomenal thing that he understood, even as he was Caesar, even at this point, it wasn't my prowess that did this. It was their their unfaithfulness that did it, and that God merely poured out his wrath, and I just happened to be the hammer that he was choosing to use to perform the work. What a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. So, what about us? Are we as fickle as the Jewish people in Jesus' day? One day, they're, they're lauding him as king. They're, they're, they're bringing him into, into the city with great praise. And then a couple days later, they're what? They're wanting, dead. they're wanting him dead. They don't want him at all. They don't want him as lord in their life. There, they want him as lord in their life. They want him to be king. And here, they don't want him at all. Dr. Jack or Mr. Hyde. I, don't, I, I know the analogy, but I don't remember who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. I just know one was one, one was the other. But we act that way. How much are you missing because of ignorance and the distraction of the world? How much are you missing? You know, he was in their midst, and they missed it. The sad thing is, you wouldn't know it. If you're missing it, you're what? You're missing it. Do you get it? I mean, I'm not just picking on you. It's the same thing goes for me. Sometimes we're so into the world and we're so full of ourself that we miss the blessing of God when it's right in our midst. And the saddest thing of the whole thing is, like them in their days, they didn't get it. Why? Because they missed it. The only way, the only way that you'll finally get it, and that I finally will get it, is when we do what? Fully give ourselves over, unwaveringly, to he who is the source of our true peace. He who really is the reigning, conquering victor. Do you get it? And when we're there, and we really do use him and place him as the king of our lives, then we'll get it. We won't miss it. I don't look forward to the day when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I'm made aware of how much I missed. How much I willingly traded off for temporary pleasures because I wanted to please me and not him. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are God and God alone. And I praise you, Lord, as as they did in the day, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, we pray for your salvation. We pray for your deliverance. You've said that we should work out our own salvation um, with fear and trembling. Lord, because it's you who, who work in our hearts to will and to do of your good pleasure. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, we would turn to you. We would look to you as our deliverer, as our savior, daily. Lord, I'm thankful for the eternal salvation you've given to us. But Lord, I pray that, that I would remember daily when the temptations come, Lord, to be fully in your presence. That, that when the tempter would come to me, it's not that he's coming to me outside of your presence, but Lord, I'm there with you. And that you would be able to be my strength and my shield, my rock, my, my fortress in whom I trust. Lord, help us to be those who worship and glorify you at all times. We ask this not according to our own wills, not according to our own desires of the flesh, but Lord, according to those desires which clearly you have placed within us, that are in accordance with Jesus' name. Amen.